What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 75, Tutmos Triumphant. This is the ninth episode in our story of the life and times of Tutmos III, King of Egypt. Today, it is a big one. We're going to explore the family, home life, and personality, artistic propaganda, and domestic policies of the legendary ruler of the Nile Valley. As with all of our longer episodes, this one is designed to be consumed in two or three sittings, so feel free to pause at the various musical interludes and resume it at a later time. Today's episode is brought to you by Robert Ensminger, whose generous donation paid for it outright. Thank you Robert, I hope it pleases you. To all my fans, please enjoy this very special episode. King Menkepere Tutmos III ruled Egypt for more than 50 years. From infancy until his last day, Tutmos was the golden Horus, the strong bull who arises in Thebes. In the course of his reign, an entire generation of Egyptians were born, grew, lived, and died. Many people never experienced any other king but him. But if anyone looking at the years of Tutmos's reign expects a single, unchanging continuity, they would be mistaken. There was plenty of change in domestic and royal policies. In many respects, Tutmos shows distinct phases of evolution or change in his mindset and attitude. That's the sort of thing I want to explore today. Because he ruled so long, and left such a rich historical record, Tutmos is a rare figure in Egyptian history a ruler who emerges from events to actually give us a sense of his personality, his mind. Tutmos is no generic ruler of the Nile Valley, all archetypes and idealism. Instead, the king's heart and mind are discernible. Thanks to his rich legacy, we can put together the pieces to get a good sense of who this man really was. Parts of the king's personality are, for us, already clear. We know that he was bold and courageous in warfare. When he led his surprise attack on Megiddo and risked personal danger in order to seize advantage, Tutmos showed his audacity and his determination. When he commissioned a fleet of riverboats and had them hauled across Syria just to cross the Euphrates River, Tutmos revealed a streak of innovation, a willingness to think creatively to accomplish his aims. Those militaristic and combative traits served Tutmos well on the field, but a ruler cannot be antagonistic at home. Even a pharaoh needs to maintain the support of those around him. Mastering the battlefield and mastering the throne room are two very different skill sets. So, 
Who was Tutmos III when he was at home? Well, now that we've finished his major campaigns, we can finally dig into that material. This is the stuff I've been waiting for. I'm excited to share it with you. Our story today begins in regnal year 40, which is approximately 1455 BCE. The king was now about 42 years old, well into his middle age. At this time, Tutmos was still dividing his time between Egypt and Syria. The campaigns of years 40 to 45, which I described in episode 74, are still underway as today's episode takes place, but they are simply the background to this story. Today, we're exploring the king's domestic policies. We're visiting Tutmos at home. But where was home exactly? Tutmos probably divided his home life between three main locations. When planning his campaigns, the king probably resided in the north, at the delta city of Peru Nefer. When officiating at major celebrations, like Opet or the Sed festival, the king probably stayed in Thebes. But when he wanted to relax or spend some quiet time, for that, the king probably stayed at his harem. The harem of the king was located near the Fayum Oasis, the large lake just south of Memphis. This was one of the agricultural centres of Egypt. Since the days of Senusaret I, back in the Middle Kingdom, rulers of Egypt had been spending time at the Fayum, in elaborate palaces and residences. Most of these are lost, their mud-brick buildings buried by agriculture or dissolved in groundwater. But the site of Gurob, the harem of Tutmos III, survives enough to give us a look at the king's home life. The harem palace at Gurob was called Merwer, or Great Canal. It was founded sometime during the early reign of Tutmos, possibly on the orders of Queen Hatshepsut. We know that Tutmos grew up at this location, so it's possible the harem palace was where Hatshepsut sent Tutmos in order to keep him out of her way, while she governed the rest of the country. Out of sight, out of mind, that kind of idea. The harem palace at Gurob, Merwer, was the centre of a full-scale settlement. It seems like the royal palace was surrounded by a support network dedicated entirely to its maintenance. The palace received regular deliveries of foodstuffs and huge quantities of pottery. Archaeologists excavating at the palace have discovered more than 400 kilograms of pottery pieces. That's nearly 900 pounds of material, a mighty assemblage. So Tutmose's home palace was a bustling hive of activity. But this wasn't just limited to servants and provisions. The palace was also a producer. Fragments of papyri discovered at the harem palace of Tutmose reveal that its main inhabitants, the royal wives and concubines, spent a good part of their time involved in light industrial work. Specifically, they were involved in the production of linen. Working with weavers, the royal woman produced a huge variety of textiles, much of which survive in the archaeological record. References in the papyrus indicate that the wives of Tutmos were responsible for weaving the royal headdresses, perhaps even the ones worn by the king on official occasions, and things like cloths and small carrying bags as well. According to the hieroglyphs, these textiles or fabrics were of the highest quality, which either means the royal women were exceptionally skilled weavers, or the fact that the cloth was produced by such prestigious women gave it an extra level of social quality. 
I'm going with the latter. The Egyptians were so obsessed with reputation and prestige that it's not hard to imagine that linen produced at the royal harem was more valued because of who produced it, not necessarily because it was any better. Basically, if you were looking for a prestigious brand of textile, you couldn't do better than brand Gurab. Call it the ancient Egyptian equivalent of Prada. It's all about the name, baby. The royal women responsible for this production, the weaving and sewing, they were more than just invisible producers. They were high-ranking queens and wives, and they played an important role in the social and economic life of the Egyptian court. Over the course of 40 years or so, Tutmos married at least seven women. These royal wives, the Hemet Nesut, came from a variety of backgrounds. Some were the daughters of prominent families, others were marriages of convenience, and some were matches made to serve a diplomatic purpose, to create a bond between the Egyptian court and some of its far-flung vassals. In the course of his life, Tutmos had two, maybe three, wives who were accorded the rank of Weret, or Great. These great royal wives were what we might call the queens of Egypt. They sat alongside Tutmos at royal events, and perhaps officiated at some religious ceremonies as priestesses. They also produced the best of the royal children, the most legitimate. These great royal wives were the ones with whom Tutmos would produce the next generation. They were the principal conduit for the royal succession. Tutmos married his first great royal wife when he was about 13 years old. This queen was named Sat-Ia, or Daughter of the Moon. She was probably about 12 or 13 years old herself, and she came from a prominent family. Her mother, Ipu, had been a wet nurse to Tutmos III himself when he was a child. Her father is unknown, but may have been the man Amosa Pen Nekbet, a prominent courtier and career soldier, who had served Tutmos's grandfather on campaign and gained great wealth and respect for his service. So, Sat-Ia, or Daughter of the Moon, was well-connected, and this may have been why the match with Tutmos was arranged. Since Tutmos was about 13 when they married, we can assume that the marriage was orchestrated by our dear friend Hatshepsut. Being at the height of her power, Hatshepsut could easily direct the young pharaoh to his first wife. By choosing Sat-Ia, Hatshepsut may have been forging greater bonds between the royal household and a prominent wealthy family. Tutmos's marriage to Sat-Ia might have been one of political convenience. Even so, it wasn't too long before it became fruitful. Sat-Ia bore Tutmos his first son around regnal year 14. The couple were about 16 or 17 years old. The new prince was named Amenemhat, or Amun is at the forefront. This was an old name, dating back to the 12th dynasty about 500 years earlier. It was an august name, the name of numerous respected rulers. For Tutmos III, a ruler who paid a lot of attention to history and the ancestral lineage, Amenemhat was a very good name indeed. So Amenemhat was the heir, of course, and it wasn't long before Tutmos started to put him forward into the public eye. When the boy was about 10 years old or so, in 1471 BCE, Tutmos named him the Overseer of Cattle of the King. This meant that the child Amenemhat was, theoretically, in charge of the livestock on the royal estates. 
so he was now responsible for an important part of Tutmose's household assets. The idea was to teach the prince early what went into rule and administration, and, more importantly, to start introducing Amenemhat to the bureaucrats and the officials he would one day rule. He was going to be king eventually, of course, so it was important to promote him as young as possible. There could not be any questions about whom Tutmose had chosen for his heir. Of course, in practical terms, scribes and overseers would have done the actual work in this job, but it's possible that Amenemhat began to learn the art of ruling by assisting these overseers on the estates located around the Gurab palace. Since Gurab was in a very fertile region, there were probably many opportunities for the young heir to learn administration, cattle-rearing, and basic leadership skills. Amenemhat was not an only child. Queen Sat-Ia also produced three more children for Tatmos. Over the course of her life, Sat-Ia gave birth to a second son named Si-Amun, or son of Amun, and two daughters, Baket-Amun, or handmaiden of Amun, and Nefertari, or beautiful companion. Apart from a few small statuettes and names appearing on artifacts, we know almost nothing about these three other children. You see, in the tradition of the royal household, only the heir was given any kind of public visibility. The others were simply there as backups. Tutmose probably put a lot of his early hopes on young Amenemhat, but he was sadly frustrated in these. Sometime after his tenth birthday, we're not exactly sure when, the young prince died. The heir to the throne went to the realm of Osiris, and Tutmose was back at square one. As a double loss, the queen Sat-Ia also passed away sometime in the middle of Tutmose's reign. Again, we don't know exactly when she died, but it was probably around regnal year 30, give or take. Sat-Ia was buried somewhere. Her mummy does not survive. Perhaps she was entombed with her son Amenemhat. Perhaps not. Either way, Sat-Ia and Amenemhat now disappear from our story. At the age of 32 or so, Tutmose was left a widower and without an heir. Difficult circumstances for anyone, doubly so for Tutmose, who already had to suffer through 22 years of Hatshepsut overshadowing him. Now it seemed like life itself was conspiring to remove his chances at creating a stable and secure dynasty. The king needed a new queen, and he needed one soon. Tutmose's second great royal wife was named Merit Ray, aka the Beloved of Ray. Confusingly, Merit Ray's full name was actually Merit Ray Hatshepsut, but I am not going down that rabbit hole, so let's stick with Merit Ray. Queen Merit Ray came to prominence sometime before regnal year 35. We know this because she soon bore the king a new son in regnal year 36. This new son was named Amun-Hotep. Amun-Hotep became the new heir to the throne. Tutmose's succession was back on track. Of course, technically there was a second son by Sat-Ia named Si-Amun, but we hear nothing about him, so I guess we have to assume that he died young, or was sidelined in favour of a new eldest son. Either way, Si-Amun doesn't appear again. Queen Merit Ray proved to be very adept at bearing children. Over the three decades that she lived with Tutmose, 
the queen produced six children all up. There were two sons, Amunhotep and also Men Kepere. There were also four daughters, named Nebet Iunet, or the Lady of Dendera, one of the titles of the goddess Hathor. There were two daughters named Merit Amun, or Beloved of Amun. And finally, a princess simply named Iset, after the goddess Isis. We know almost nothing about these four girls, and I can't offer any commentary. So all up, by the time he was in his forties, Tutmos had fathered at least ten children. Some of these had died young, and the king was now living with his second great royal wife. But, by the time he was forty-two years old, Tutmos seemed to have a solid succession in place. As of year 40, when we begin this episode, the royal family had settled into the structure that would persist until the end of the king's reign. Let me break it down. At the top, we have King Tutmos and Queen Meritre. In addition, we have Queen Meritre's mother, named Hui, acting as a background matriarch. The children are led by Amun-Hotep. He is the crown prince, with at least one, maybe two brothers, see Amun and Menkepere. There are many girls, at least six, and a bunch of secondary wives floating around the court. It was a big family, but only Queen Meritre and her son Amunhotep go on to any prominence, so those are the names to remember. If you want to know more about Tutmose's family, I do recommend Aidan Dodson and Diane Hilton's excellent book, The Complete Royal Families of Ancient Egypt. It gives you a rundown of all the information available, at the time it was written, and is a great resource, which I use quite often. Anyways, enough about the family. It's time to get to grips with King Tutmos himself. Tutmos is a rare thing in the lineage of Egyptian rulers. A king who emerges from the fog of idealism, archetype, and propaganda to reveal some elements of his mind, his thoughts, and his personality. Thanks to the incredibly rich record he has left behind, Tutmos can be described better than most kings. Looking at a few important sources, particularly what others have said about him, and his own actions, I am now able to give you a sense of who this man, this living legend, actually was. Tutmos's actions speak volumes. As I said at the beginning of the episode, the king's war records reveal his creative thinking and his audacity. He was bold and courageous, a strong leader on the battlefield. At home, Tutmose was also a capable and conscientious leader of government. Thanks to the comments of some contemporaries, we can suggest that Tutmose was, in rule, a clear-thinking and sensible ruler. Quote, Behold, his majesty knew all that had ever occurred. There was nothing of which he was not aware. He was thoth in everything. There was no task which he did not complete. End quote. These are the words of a prominent official who lived and served under Tutmos III. This contemporary's name was Rek Mi Re, or one who is knowledgeable like Re. Rek Mi Re was one of Tutmos's royal viziers, the highest administrative officials in the land men responsible for directing the various government departments, receiving petitions, and dispensing justice on behalf of the king. The vizier's duties took them all over the kingdom, and their authority was second only to that of the pharaoh himself. Such power was, naturally, open to abuse. 
But Rek Ray tells us that Tutmos had very specific instructions on this matter. Recounting in his tomb how the king invested him with his power, Rek Ray records the following. Quote, the king said, It is an abomination of the god to show partiality. This is the teaching. Thou shalt do the like, shalt regard him who is known to thee like him who is unknown to thee, and him who is near to him who is far. An official who does like this, then shall he flourish greatly. Do not avoid a petitioner, but do not nod thy head when he speaks. Thou shalt punish a wrongdoer when thou hast let him hear that on account of which thou punished him. Lo, they will say, the petitioner loves him who nods his head and listens to supplication. End quote. This is an old translation, as you can tell from the language. Basically, what Tutmos is saying here is, treat every petitioner equally. Do not favour the ones whom you know. Do not ignore any petitioner while they are speaking, but at the same time, do not suggest that you are too favourable to them. Finally, if you are going to punish someone, explain to them the reasons, the account on which you will do so. It sounds like Tutmos was a conscientious ruler, attuned to the needs of his administration and his people, interested in directing power away from partiality and towards fairness. It seems as though Tutmos instructed his highest officials in what he considered to be the proper execution of justice. This was a valuable admonition in a world where status and prestige might easily lead to the abuse of power. If we cast our memory back to the Middle Kingdom, we might remember a tale called The Eloquent Peasant. This was a story recounting how a peasant, in search of justice against an abusive official, had to make numerous petitions in the royal offices. Time after time he was held back or sent away, until his eloquence and reasoned arguments were so persuasive that he won an audience with the king himself. That was a tale of how power might abuse the powerless, and it was a classic of Egyptian literature. It is possible that Tutmose, having learned this text in his childhood education, applied the central theme to his own government. I have absolutely no proof for this suggestion, but his instructions to Rekmiray bear all the hallmarks of a ruler trying to avoid the kind of corruption that was described in that older story. If so, well, it would be one of the first cases of an enlightened monarch that we've seen in our story yet. But again, I'm speculating. It's just an idea. Anyway, Rekmi Ray the vizier tells us of Tutmose's considered and just rule. Of course, he may just be pandering to the king, but I sort of trust Rekmi Ray's description. I'll explain why. The main personality trait that Rekmi Ray indicates is a sense of intellectual rigour. Whether it takes the form of knowledge and learning, or considered and justice-oriented leadership, Rekmi Ray suggests that Tutmose was a man of sound mind, with much to learn from and offer to the world around him. This actually syncs up quite well with some other sources for Tutmose's personality. If we look at Tutmose's life and the things he left behind, it seems pretty clear that one of the king's most prominent traits was, in fact, a sense of intellectual curiosity. If there is one thing that comes across clearly from contemporaries and from his monuments, it's that the king was interested in recording and documenting 
different parts of the world around him. This feature of the king's mind was demonstrated most clearly in his greatest monument. The festival hall at Karnak, which we call the Ark Menu, was Tutmose's signature contribution to the sanctuary of Amun. And within this monument, there were at least two features which indicate, quite clearly, that the king was a knowledgeable and curious individual. I've already mentioned how the Ark Menu had a separate chamber dedicated to the images of past kings. The Hall of the Ancestors contained a, supposedly, complete lineage of the legitimate rulers of the Nile Valley. Stretching back into the Old Kingdom, this hall was a living record of the royal line. It was also a demonstration of Tutmose's piety and interest in record-keeping. But more interesting than the Hall of Ancestors is the special chamber that Tutmose commissioned as part of the Ark Menu's inner sanctuary. Here, hidden away from the public world, the statue of the god Amun sat upon his throne. Before the god, Tutmose placed a chamber filled with what can only be described as a secret garden. As an antechamber to the central shrine of the Akmenu, Tutmose added a special room filled with scenes of plants, animals, and the natural world. Today, Egyptologists refer to this room as the Botanical Garden of Tutmose III. It's a pretty cool feature, let me introduce it. The Botanical Garden room contains the images and representations of at least 275 different plants, flowers, and animals. Everything from fruit and trees to obscure seeds and now rare animals. These images were laid out in horizontal bands around the wall, and they were richly painted. Their images, supposedly, were accurate to life. So Amun, sitting in his little shrine, could look out at this chamber and see the world which he had created. A world that Tutmos ruled, and a world which the king now offered to the god himself. Here, Hidden away from the public and the uninitiated, the natural elements of the world were condensed into one sacred space. The botanical gardens are complex and detailed. Words cannot do them justice. I'll do my best, but of course there are images on our Facebook page and at egyptianhistorypodcast.com. Now, the botanical garden is a room of four sides. Each wall is divided up into horizontal sections, and these sections are filled with various flora and fauna. The plants and animals are divided according to theme, and the theme is geography. Excellently, the plants and animals are arranged according to their actual geographical location. So, in the northeast corner, we have the flora and fauna of the lands north of Egypt. The inscription refers to them specifically as, quote, plants that his majesty, Tutmos, had found in the land of Retjenu, or Syria. This section is full of plants and animals from the Syrian heartlands. There's a crow, or maybe a raven, a female gazelle, a grasshopper, pomegranates, chrysanthemum flowers, grapevines, iris flowers, and so on. Then, in the northwest corner, we get plants from Egypt itself. Sycamore trees, lotus, pomegranates, a desert raven. On other walls, there are birds like turtle doves and partridges. There are deer and calves, lotus flowers, seed pods, egrets, and a cuckoo, a rich menagerie of plants and animals, all supposedly true to their real-life counterparts. In fact, the walls are even decorated with an inscription that says, quote, His Majesty said, 
I swear, as Ra loves me and as my father Amun favours me, all of these things happened in truth. I have not written fiction as that which really happened to my majesty. My majesty has done this from a desire to put them before my father Amun in this great temple of Amun, the Archmenu, as a memorial for ever and ever. In other words, Tutmos claims that the images of the plants and animals are accurate, all true to the flora and fauna he encountered and collected over the course of his campaigns. Now, most of the flora and fauna are recognisable, and examiners can identify them with some certainty. But there are also some which seem to be kind of imaginary. Either they are representations of animals now lost, or they are simply inaccurate. Which kind of makes Tutmos's boast about being true to life and accuracy a little bit hollow. But hey, this is royal propaganda. No one was fact-checking the king. So what does the Archmenu tell us about Tutmos's personality? Well, it tells us quite simply that the king was a man who valued information and learning. Valued it enough to put it in one of the most sacred spaces available to him. For the antechamber of the sanctuary of Amun-Re, the holiest of holies in Karnak Temple, to be filled with what can best be described as a naturalist's handbook to Egyptian wildlife? Well, that suggests that Tutmos was a man fascinated by these kind of subjects. So Rekmi Ray's description of Tutmos as a man of learning, and the evidence from the Archmenu, combined to suggest that our man Tutmos was quite the cultured individual. I wouldn't go so far as to call him an ancient Egyptian Attenborough, but we're in the ballpark, surely. I think I've made the point, but let me bring in a more scholarly voice on the subject. Historian Nicholas Grimal writes of Tutmos's reign and personality, quote, Tutmos III's great deeds and numerous buildings have ensured his immortality, but he is also remembered for his creativity, described by the scribes as more durable than monuments. His enthusiasm for botany has already been noted, but he also practiced the art of pottery and was apparently able to compose literary works himself. Tutmos III, a well-educated man who enthusiastically threw himself into the reading of ancient texts, revived the tradition of piety to ancestors. The list of his ancestors which he set up at Karnak, and the care that he took with their monuments, certainly show deep piety, but they also suggest an acute sense of history appropriate to a great king. So Tutmos was curious and learned. He was bold and audacious. He was a conscientious and just ruler, at least in principle. He was fertile, able to father many children, and he was pious to the records and memories of his ancestors. He was long-lived, so clearly he was favoured by the gods. Also, he was victorious in warfare. In short, Tutmos was an ideal Egyptian ruler, an archetype for future generations. Of course, it wasn't all smiles and sunshine. I've banged on about his positive traits. What about Tutmos's less admirable habits? Did he have any that we know about? What were Tutmos's flaws? Chapter 2 So far throughout this episode, I've explored Tutmos's life at home. 
his family, his contemporaries, and his more positive personal traits. But no record would be complete without a look at the king's less admirable qualities. So, let's hunt them out if we can. Now, normally the historical record would not permit too much criticism of an Egyptian king. Since every ruler was filling a religious archetype, the good god Horus, public criticism was inappropriate in any lasting format. So there are no critical biographies or pejorative texts about most kings. The closest we come is the occasional popular tradition, stories like Khufu being a tyrant, Pepe II having a male lover, or Hatshepsut being displayed in flagrante with her courtier Senenmut. These are all slanderous, but none of them have much in the way of hard evidence to back them up. They're just stories that lasted a long time. Well, Tutmose's rich historical record preserves a lot more than just his victories and accomplishments. It also reveals how, in the later years of his reign, the king fell prey to a potent and extreme bout of anxiety. We are now in regnal year 42. The year is approximately 1453 BCE. Tutmose is now about 44 years old, and has ruled the kingdom of Egypt for the vast majority of his life. His son and heir, Amunhotep II, is about six years old. The king is looking towards the future. Well, sort of. In his middle age, Tutmose began to look forward, but to do this he had to look back on his reign and what he had accomplished so far. What he found, he did not like. Looking back, Tutmose had many victories and great accomplishments. No one could deny those, they were proclaimed across great monuments for all to see. But the king was denied a perfect record, by some very obvious and irritating smudges. It's not hard to imagine what was irritating him. Tutmose was now uncomfortably brooding on the fact that, for the first 22 years of his reign, he had been sidelined in his own court. He, the king of Egypt, had been a secondary figure in his kingdom, while power was wielded effectively and irritatingly by his aunt, Hatshepsut. Yes, starting from year 42, Tutmose finally began to examine the rule of Hatshepsut from a political perspective. Pretty quickly, the king started to react to what he perceived. With Hatshepsut being such a prolific builder, her name and image were all over Egypt. Anyone passing by a temple was likely to encounter the smiling visage of the queen with its smooth cheeks and arched eyebrows. These statues proclaimed to the world, I am Hatshepsut, king of Egypt, hear me roar. For twenty years now, Tutmos had been content to let bygones be bygones. These monuments still stood, and the name of Hatshepsut remained adorning the walls and images. But as his anxiety began to deepen in middle age, Tutmos found that he could no longer tolerate the prominence of Hatshepsut's image. The Queen King was too visible, and where she was visible, she was a threat to Tutmos's own orthodox worldview, and to his son's legitimacy. So, he decided to take action. In regnal year 42 or so, the King made a decision that would have an immense ripple effect through history. No longer willing to accept Hatshepsut's visibility in monuments, Tutmos decided to remove the Queen King from the public record. The word went out. Tutmos's artisans, his stonemasons, scribes and sculptors, now went into the temples and shrines of Thebes. They took chisels and hammers, and set to work. 
Wherever they found the name of Hatshepsut, they chiselled it out, replacing it with the name of other royal women from the family. They left the images of the queen, but they rebranded them, replacing her name with those of Meritre and Satia, the great royal wives of the king. Likewise, the names of Hatshepsut's statues were repurposed. Her image was denied its true name, and statues of the queen king became statues of Tutmose's queens. The face of Hatshepsut was now denied its identity. Tutmose was erasing the queen from memory. Next, Tutmose's henchmen went to work on the queen king's monuments. At Thebes, Memphis, and in particular at Deir el-Bahari, they began to dismantle the temples and shrines which Hatshepsut had commissioned. The queen's temple at Karnak, for instance, the so-called Red Chapel or Chapelle Rouge, was dismantled brick by brick. Royal stonemasons took the walls and floor pieces and carted them off, leaving just the black granite doorways intact. The dismantled blocks of the Red Chapel were taken away from their original location and dumped in a heap in a different part of the Karnak enclosure. Out of the way, left to be covered by sand or dust, they were nevertheless kept intact. Later, artisans came back to the heap and removed any of the queen's names which they could find. But they didn't try too hard on this last point, and the blocks which were buried in the pile were left as they were, undamaged. Later on, these blocks were reused by a later king, and thankfully preserved, which is how the Red Chapel is reconstructed today. But in year 42, the Red Chapel disappeared from the sacred space of Karnak itself. Tutmose kept the black granite doorways of the Red Chapel, replacing the names of course, and incorporated them into other parts of Karnak. Why? Well, maybe he liked them, or maybe the black granite was simply too valuable to throw away. The hardness of black granite and its relative rarity in Egypt made it a valuable building material. Perhaps, faced with the choice of keeping it or paying for more quarrying, Tutmos simply took the pragmatic route. In fact, I should clarify here. Tutmos didn't outright destroy any of Hatshepsut's monuments. His workers dismantled them, taking the masonry apart and effectively deconstructing the buildings, but they didn't smash anything up or break it into pieces. You see, although Egyptian kings have a reputation for replacing their predecessors' names and monuments, they didn't usually like to destroy these works. Monuments like the Red Chapel were still sanctified, sacred to the gods and the royal heritage. So destroying these buildings outright was rarely an option. There are exceptions to that trend, of course, but most of the time, it was preferable to keep the actual blocks intact at the very least. Instead, and this is equally true of Tutmose, kings looking to replace older monuments usually would have them dismantled and then reuse the blocks in their own monuments. So that's what happened to Hatshepsut's buildings. All across Egypt, the monuments she had commissioned were deconstructed. Her name was removed from any visible surface or decoration, and most of them were cast down, buried in the sand, or reused as part of newer monuments later on. One of the main monuments that Tutmose tried to repurpose or replace were the queen's mighty obelisks. Hatshepsut is well known for her obelisks. She left two at Karnak, and another huge one in the old granite quarry of Aswan. That unfinished obelisk was an obelisk so large that it couldn't be removed from the quarry, and it had to be left behind. Now, it's a tourist destination. You can even walk on it. It is huge. 
The obelisks of the Queen are one of her standout contributions to Egyptian monument building. They not only proclaimed her accomplishments grandly in texts, they also spoke of her dedication to her father Amun-Re. The obelisks were powerful symbols of the glory of the god. With their height, their shape, and their golden peaks, they were dazzling emblems of the solar divinity. This made them hard to remove. One doesn't simply destroy monuments to Amun-Re, so Tutmos had to improvise. Sensibly, Tutmos did not just pull down the obelisks. Again, outright destroying a monument was a bit of a taboo. Instead, the obelisks were repurposed for the king's own needs. But the names of Ma'at Ka Re Hatshepsut were still emblazoned on these monuments, eternal memorials to the queen. Well, that would never do. Hatshepsut's obelisks were now hidden away. How? Well, Tutmos incorporated them into a new structure. As Tutmos expanded the temple at Karnak, he built a new monumental gateway. This gateway was built up literally around the obelisks of Hatshepsut, and incorporated them into its masonry. The effect was a strange sort of bunny ears look. The gateway stands tall, but on either end an obelisk poked up like a rabbit with its ears up. You can see an image at our website, it's a very, very cool setup. The king also worked to replace the queen's immense mortuary temple in the west of Thebes. The great temple at Deir al-Bahri, called Jesser Jesseru, was the next target in his Eclipse Hatshepsut project. In year 43, the king began work on his new mortuary temple, near to the one of Hatshepsut. This temple was named Jesser Arket, or Sacred Horizon. It was built in the valley of Deir al-Bahri, near to that older monument of Hatshepsut, but it was designed quite clearly to replace hers. Now, Tutmos technically already had a mortuary temple, built down near the River Nile, but that monument had been commissioned in the days of Hatshepsut's regency. Nowadays, the king viewed it as tainted by her. So he abandoned that older temple and set up his new one. It's hard not to see this new project as a kind of middle finger to his deceased aunt. When you look at the building of the monument itself, that perception is even stronger. Tutmos placed Jesser Arket on the hillside of the Deir el-Bahari valley. It's about a third of the way up the hill, beneath the cliffs of the valley. Of course, this was uneven ground, so the temple was set up on a large podium, with a causeway running down to the valley floor. Worshippers could ascend this causeway, getting an impressive look at the valley as they went up, and finally come to the entrance of Tutmos's temple. Now, if they had looked over the edge as they went up, they would have seen that this new temple overshadowed that of Hatshepsut. In other words, Tutmos was literally one-upping the queen, by having a mortuary temple built above hers. It's extremely petty, but I have to admit, it's kind of funny all the same. Inside the temple itself, Tutmos added scenes of the royal children in procession before the gods. In this way, he promoted his family and stressed their importance in the religious sense. His family was THE family, the first family. Scenes of them at the temple stressed their legitimacy and their right to carry the bloodline of the royal household forward. Tutmos was clearly obsessed with family legitimacy, and how it related to the lineage of kings. 
In this mortuary temple, Jessa Arket, he also added a room dedicated to the royal ancestors. Now he had already put one of these in the festival hall at Karnak, but he added one to Jessa Arket as well. The idea, I think, was that the area should have a proper worship space for the royal heritage, since Tutmos was actively taking control of that heritage, and dictating who was legitimately included in it, it was appropriate that he should appear as a respectful and pious ruler to all kings, or at least the ones that counted. Of course, that mostly meant excluding Hatshepsut. I'll talk in more detail about this mortuary temple in the next episode, but for now, let's leave it at that. Tutmos is making his point loud and clear. Hatshepsut and her authority is down and out, gone from the royal lineage. From here on out, it is all about the Tutmosids, especially the king's paternal grandfather, the legendary Tutmos I. So Tutmos had replaced many of Hatshepsut's monuments, one way or another, and he had orchestrated an immense program to remove her name and image from the public eye. That might have been the end of the affair, if it hadn't been for the fact that Hatshepsut had done a lot more than just build monuments in her time. But the queen had been an active ruler, and she had taken a lot of steps to ensure that her legitimacy was unquestioned. So, to remove her properly, Tutmos now had to undo a few more things. One of the things that Hatshepsut had done to proclaim her legacy was to create an official doctrine, probably fictional, that she had been named as the future king by none other than her father. Her father was the legendary Tutmos I, a ruler who had stamped his authority all over the Nile Valley and Canaan. Before Tutmos III, he had been one of the most successful kings so far. He was a great man in the classic sense of the term, and when he died, he left behind big shoes to fill. So Hatshepsut capitalised on her relationship with Tutmos I as much as possible to establish herself as a legitimate ruler of Egypt. Now, to prove her connection to Tutmos I, Hatshepsut had made a strange decision in regards to her funeral preparations. She had decided to forego building her own tomb, and instead had placed her sarcophagus and canopic jars inside the tomb of Tutmos I himself. Burying herself alongside her father, Hatshepsut had taken the path of maximum association. In the underworld, her soul was enjoying life alongside that of Tutmos. Well, in the here and now, Tutmos III was having none of that anymore. Sometime after year 42, Tutmos III sent his agents into the Valley of the Kings. These men, possibly priests, soldiers, stonemasons, or a combination thereof, went to the tomb in which Tutmos I and Hatshepsut lay. This tomb, KV-20, was reopened by the king's agents. They dismantled the door, entered into the gloom, and proceeded down the long, curving corridor. Deep into the earth they descended, until, at last, in the flickering torchlight, they saw the sarcophagus that they sought. The agents had come for the mummy of Tutmos I. Leaving Hatshepsut where she was for now, they opened the stone sarcophagus of the great king, and removed his coffin from its rest. They collected up the old king's funerary equipment, canopic jars, weapons, food, etc., and carried it all out of the chamber, 
Then, probably struggling with the weight of the coffin, they carried the body of this royal ancestor back up the corridor and out into the valley. I like to imagine this process being overseen personally by Thutmose III, but I have no evidence for that. It just makes for a good mental image, the torches flickering on the king's face as he inspects the coffin, nods his head, and then points in the direction that he desires. The men set off down the slopes of the valley and head for the place that Thutmose indicates. The agents of Thutmose III took their stolen prize out of KV-20 and carried it over to another tomb nearby. This tomb was KV-38 in our numbering, and it was located about 60 meters or 200 feet west of Hatshepsut's tomb. Here, at the far western end of the valley, a new tomb had been commissioned and prepared by Thutmose III. This new sepulchre was a small tomb, just two chambers and a short corridor with a stairway. The whole structure is only about 21 meters long. It had some simple paintings, nothing remarkable, and it had two columns for support. So it was a small tomb, and not exactly grand or elegant. But that was okay, it would suit Tutmos's purposes just fine. The king led his band of loyal agents into this tomb, and Tutmos I's coffin was placed within a new sarcophagus. Priests anointed the coffin, said their prayers, and sealed the lid over it once more. The servants of Thutmose III now placed the funerary objects like the canopic jars around this new sarcophagus, and soon the chamber was sealed once more and hidden away. This would be Thutmose I's eternal resting place. Here he would remain. Or at least he would remain there until events later on in history conspired to move Thutmose I once again. But that's a story for another day. The second burial of Thutmose I's body was, quite simply, a political coup. Thutmose III effectively stole the body of his grandfather away from Hatshepsut, who was, let's not forget, the king's daughter. He then placed his grandfather in a tomb far from that of Hatshepsut, and much closer to that of Thutmose III, and then he sealed it away forevermore. In effect, Thutmose III pulled off a heist, a grave robbery, just in order to secure his own political agenda. This relocation of Thutmose I's body was an interesting move, and it has led some scholars to confusion over whom KV-20 actually belonged to originally. You see, if the tomb was originally Thutmose's I, the question is, why remove his body when you could just remove the usurper Hatshepsut? Surely it would make sense to take her body instead, since she was the later burial, and just rebury her somewhere forgotten, or even destroy it. Well, not so fast. Going back to the same reason that Tutmos did not destroy Hatshepsut's monuments, we find the same logic behind reburying the I instead of the Queen. Even though KV-20 originally belonged to the I, the decision was made to relocate him instead of Hatshepsut. Why? Well, the location of reburial was much closer to Thutmose III's tomb, so it made sense to put the body that he wanted to control closer to home. He wanted Thutmose I's legitimacy to shine on him as an insurance policy for his own political lineage. 
claiming ownership of Thutmose I's remains and burying him closer to his own tomb, Thutmose III was taking the right steps to improve his political authority. Secondly, it simply wasn't viable to destroy Hatshepsut's corpse. She may have lost her political legitimacy, but she was still a member of the family. Her body was still sacred to her soul. Now her body deserved preservation. Whether it was treated as a king, or just an ordinary mortal princess, that's just the way things were. So Hatshepsut was left in Thutmose I's old tomb, and Thutmose I was relocated to a new burial. This way, the body of the older king was removed from Hatshepsut's taint, connected more closely with Thutmose III, and made so that no one could do anything taboo or wrong with the body of the queen king. So, Thutmose III took two active steps towards obliterating the public, political memory of Hatshepsut. He replaced her monuments and images with his own, or with those of his family. And then he undid her work in burying herself alongside her father. Of course, all his contemporaries knew that she had been the king once upon a time. They knew that she had wielded power for 22 years. But future generations wouldn't. And that's who Tutmos was aiming at. He was looking to the future, and in order to secure that future, he had to desecrate some of the recent past. But, to be fair, the king didn't just desecrate or inconvenience others. He also made some changes to his own personal narrative. Specifically, Tutmos organised for a complete revamp of his royal sculpture and portraiture. Around the same time as the desecration of Hatshepsut's name and the reburial of Thutmose I, a small-scale revolution occurred in the king's official portrait. Thutmose, in his late Middle Age, began to review his public statues, and review the image that they presented of the man as a ruling monarch. Most royal statues from ancient Egypt are fairly generic. They have certain features, like a confident but mysterious smile, a broad chest, a narrow waist, and youthful features. These give them the appearance of eternal youth and beauty. Now, Tutmose's statues were pretty much the same. But, thanks to the preservation of the king's mummy, historians can also demonstrate that Tutmose's statues, at least before year 40, were based largely on the king's actual portrait. The king's mummy, although in poor condition, proves that Tutmose's early portraits got some features of his face totally correct. For example, the king had a large hooked nose in real life. This shows up in his statues. Secondly, Tutmose's prominent cheekbones are represented accurately, as is the hollow under his eyes, which gave him a sort of deep-set gaze. Finally, the chin of the king is accurate to his real body a slight S-shaped curve when viewed in profile. Taken together, these features suggest that for much of his reign, Tutmose's sculptors and image makers were working to a genuine model or template of the king's actual face. But there was a problem. Tutmose's early statues bore more than a passing resemblance to his aunt, Hatshepsut. This makes sense, sure, they were related after all. But the artistic style of the Queen's statues, and the artistic style of Tutmose's, were more than a little similar. 
For Tutmos in his early 40s, this was becoming an increasingly uncomfortable fact. Whenever he looked at himself, he seems to have seen Hatshepsut. More importantly, he saw a style of portrait that had been dictated by the queen back when she was in charge. A style that associated him permanently with her period of unorthodox governance. So, the king did what any person in their 40s does when they're unhappy with their appearance. He got a facelift. Tutmose's decree went out. From year 40-ish onwards, the royal portrait would now be modified to the king's specifications. All sculptors, tomb painters, and artists would now have to adjust their representation of the monarch. Whether in 3D statue or 2D tomb and temple decoration, the image of Tutmose III's face was redesigned. The new form would remove any resemblance to Hatshepsut, and it would do the same thing that the reburial of Tutmose I had done, draw strong connections between the living king and his prestigious grandfather. The king started by reducing the curve of his nose. Sculptors now gave Tutmose a straighter nose, less hooked, less pronounced. His nose now looked a lot more like that of his grandfather, Tutmose I. So, with a minor bit of surgery, political continuity was implied through the medium of art. Secondly, the king also adjusted his cheekbones. Instead of the prominent, slightly angular cheekbones that prevailed earlier, the king's statues now reverted to a more Middle Kingdom style. These were rounder, sort of slightly more puffy. They gave the face a more oval shape, rather than the slight angularity that prevailed under Hatshepsut's guidance. Then, his jawline was made straighter and harder, more in line with classical artistic styles, especially those of the Middle Kingdom, which is what we tend to mean when we say classical Egyptian art. Finally, Tatmos modified his eyes. The outer edge of his eyes was now raised slightly, to give them a bit of an angle. The eyebrows were also raised slightly. Basically, Tutmose's imagery was now on fleek. I have to say, the fact that Tutmose did the same thing as a stereotypical Beverly Hills housewife is kind of fantastic. But why did he do this? Well, Tutmose's motivations, as I've suggested, were largely political. If there was any vanity, we have no trace of it. The king was, by now, obsessed with the idea of perfecting his connection with the royal ancestors, most especially his grandfather. The message was 100% all about tradition and legitimacy. Tutmose looked to the past, his father, his grandfather, and his ancestors, and he found in their statues, their images, the inspiration he needed to secure his own personal, political, and ideological legacy. Now, let's move on a bit and try to bring all this material together. From regnal years 40 to 45 or so, King Menkepere Tutmose III began to demonstrate an unusual set of domestic policies and propaganda. His personal attitude towards Hatshepsut and her place in the recent narrative of royal history changed remarkably. From a general apathy and disinterest, the king now became relentless in his drive to remove her from the official record. Tutmose's actions took three forms. Firstly, a reshaping of his public statuary and propaganda. Secondly, the reburial of his paternal grandfather, 
away from the Queen King's body and closer to his own tomb. Finally, the complete removal of Hatshepsut's name from all public monuments and records. Where her image appeared, her name was chiseled out and replaced with that of Tutmose's female relatives. I've spoken here and there about Tutmose's reasons for all of this. Broadly speaking, they were political. He wanted to remove the queen from the record and so protect his own legitimacy. But the question behind this is, why was doing this so important? What motivated Tutmose to take such harsh and extraordinary measures? In other words, what was the big deal? Chapter 3 Many scholars have puzzled over Tutmose's execration of his aunt. It's a puzzling question. Because out of a reign of some 54 years, the king only became concerned with Hatshepsut's lineage in about year 42. So for 20 years after her actual death, Tutmose didn't seem to care about her that much. Sure, he didn't exactly praise Hatshepsut or acknowledge her too outright. But that was just political expedience. Tutmose was carving out his own niche, making his own mark on the world. The king, as was proper, was establishing his political agenda, and openly talking about Hatshepsut wouldn't help him in that. But still, there's a difference between ignoring a ruler in order to set your own course, and actually removing that ruler from official recognition. So why the sudden change? Well. I'm sure we'll never know with certainty, but it can probably be traced back to a small accident of birth that happened a couple of generations earlier. The issue all sprang from the fact that Tutmose I, about 60 years earlier than this time, had left behind an unusual arrangement in the royal succession. Conventionally, the heir to the throne would be the son of the great royal wife. But Tutmose I did not have a surviving son by his main queen. So when the elder king died, he left behind a son from a secondary wife. This was the prince later known as Tutmose II. From the great royal wife, he left behind a daughter. This would be Hatshepsut. In normal circumstances, this might not have been too much of an issue. Although there were now two legitimate bloodlines, Tutmose II simply married his half-sister Hatshepsut, and the two branches of the family were united. But then the complications struck. Tutmose II died, leaving his son, our own Tutmose III, as a ruler at just age two or so. That uncomfortable situation had created a ripple effect, lasting decades. This ripple effect ultimately culminated in Tutmose III becoming incredibly concerned with the status of Hatshepsut and her place in the lineage of kings. The reason this place and Hatshepsut's legitimacy was such an issue was because Tutmose III may have perceived it as directly impacting on his own plans for the succession. There's a lot to suggest that this is the case. 
By redesigning his statues and increasing the visual references to his father, his grandfather, and the rulers of the Middle Kingdom, Tutmos was establishing that his paternal lineage was the dominant branch of the family, the dominant branch of the royal line. By obliterating Hatshepsut's images and replacing her name with that of his own wives, the king was participating in an elaborate suppression of any contenders to his rule. Why? Well, it all comes back to his children. Tutmos III had four sons in his life, but out of all of them, it seems only the youngest made it to adulthood. Three sons died early. This meant that, in regnal year 42, Tutmos only had a six-year-old son to carry on his name. With healthcare and life expectancy being what they were in the time, there was every chance that before his own life ended, Tutmos might have lost all of his children. Or, equally possible, Tutmos himself might die soon. He was already in his forties. If that happened, his heir, young Amun-Hotep II, would have to take over power while still a child. And if that happened, well, who do you think would be wielding political authority? Yeah, one of the queens. And then the whole cycle would begin again. So it's possible that Tutmos was in a difficult mental position when regnal year 42, the year of the execration of Hatshepsut, began. He had a young son, who might not live long enough to become king, or might be forced to take the throne before he was ready. Meanwhile, the other branches of the royal family, and there were other branches, however much they're invisible to us now, were watching the situation with bated breath. If Amunhotep II died, or Tutmos III died, there was every chance that the throne would pass once again to someone connected with the other half of the Tutmosid royal family. You know, the family that came from Hatshepsut, and from the late Queen Amosa. Essentially, all these upheavals, the co-regency, the rule of Hatshepsut, the denial of Tutmos III, and then the execration of Hatshepsut, can be traced back to the unfortunate fact that Tutmos I, decades before, had left behind two viable bloodlines, one from his great royal wife Armosa, and one from his lesser wife Mutnofret. Call it the butterfly effect in action. Ultimately, it cost Hatshepsut her memory in the official canon of Egyptian kings. It would be easy to view this story, the execration of Hatshepsut, as a kind of heroes and villains tale, but I don't really think that's fair. You see, neither ruler demonstrated outright personal hostility towards the other. Hatshepsut never suppressed or removed Tutmos from his rightful public position, and she consistently acknowledged his role as king of Upper and Lower Egypt. She just accompanied him on the throne. Tutmos III, likewise, never actually demonstrated any personal hostility towards his stepmother. For 20 years after her death, he let bygones be bygones, and left her where she was, in the past. It was only later, when the king aged, and anxieties over status, legitimacy, and inheritance began to become politically important, that Tutmos altered his position. Realistically, we actually have no idea whether he undertook the execration enthusiastically or reluctantly. For all we know, Tutmos may simply have felt that there was no viable alternative. The legitimacy of his son had to be secured. For that, the legitimacy of Hatshepsut and her half of the family had to be suppressed. 
Nevertheless, the prescription of Hatshepsut is consistently treated as one of Tutmose's less admirable policies. I'm not entirely sure that that's fair, all things considered. I mean, we are missing a lot of information about why and how the policy was decided. Nevertheless, judge a person by their actions and all that. Tutmose loses big points in the last decade of his reign. So, let's bring this round to some conclusions. In the fifth decade of his reign, we've seen Tutmose the triumphant and victorious ruler become something closer to Tutmose the complicated individual. The king's policies at home revealed that, beneath the bluster of warfare and propaganda, the king was capable of being deeply insecure about his political lineage. With these anxieties and insecurities clouding his mind, Tutmose's last decade saw some of his least admirable policies put into practice. Of course, we already know about the king's more generic flaws. Tutmose was violent in war and punished his enemies severely. The rebel king of Nukashi, for instance, paid for his rebellion when Tutmose poured boiling oil over his head. But that's just part and parcel of the ancient world's military practices. Rebellions were put down harshly, both as a punishment for the crime itself and as a warning to others. So that kind of thing is unpleasant, but we have to judge that within its broad context. It wasn't a remarkable trait for a ruler to have. Likewise, Tutmose's penchant for hunting wild animals. That may be distasteful to many Westerners today, but in the context of his society, it would have been unusual if Tutmose didn't hunt. It would be unmanly, inappropriate for a king to not demonstrate his vigour and power by bringing down mighty animals like lions or elephants. So while we take note of those practices, and even condemn them, we can't judge them too harshly. Actually, I wouldn't judge any of Tutmose's flaws too harshly, just as I wouldn't hold many of his virtues to be too outstanding. The king was, as I've said, a complicated figure. He had his strengths and his weaknesses. Ultimately, we should just remember that the king was capable of virtuous rule, and harsh reactions against perceived threats. Although he was a long-lived and prosperous and victorious ruler, the king never quite escaped the shadow of certain unsatisfactory events. In particular, he never really escaped the shadow of the little queen that could, the one and only Hatshepsut. Of course, the irony is now Hatshepsut is one of the better known kings of Egypt, and Tutmose III may actually slightly be less famous than her. Today, I think you're more likely to encounter someone who knows the name of Hatshepsut than the name of Tutmose III. For all his military victories, it is the anomaly that is Hatshepsut which commands our attention most strongly. She is too unique, too rare in the Egyptian annals. Although I think I've shown plenty of evidence for the power of women in this society, Hatshepsut is that rare figure who breaks through the official doctrine, the royal propaganda, to stamp her own influence on the history of these people. So, the final victory has actually gone to Hatshepsut. Today, few people visit the Akmenu or see the Megiddo narratives at Karnak, but many visit the Temple of Deir al-Bahari. Many more flock to see the Queen's statues or to purchase books about her. In the 21st century, it is Hatshepsut who holds the greater fascination for us.
So, Tutmos, I guess history owes you an apology, but it's easier to control a bloodline than it is to control a memory. In the end, it is not quite Tutmos triumphant, but rather, Tutmos triumphant, Hatshepsut eternal. As the last years of his reign began, the king was still labouring under the shadow of that powerful and noteworthy woman. He would forevermore.